You're listening to The COVID Chronicles, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. Each week, a student from the Health and Science podcasting course interviews public health experts about the COVID-19 pandemic and the important intersections with nutrition, mental health, maternal health, and more. I'm Carolyn Christ, a health and medical journalist in Georgia who co-teaches the podcasting course. I hope you'll enjoy this series as much as I did. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Back in April 2021 in Minnesota, six-year-old Week Day came down with a fever. It quickly escalated to her having trouble breathing. Her mom, worried it would escalate even further, called for an ambulance to take her to the hospital. That was the last time the first grader's family saw her. She passed away from COVID a couple of days later. Due to COVID restrictions, Week's family couldn't be with her during her hospital stay. The family received few updates over the phone. As recently settled refugees from Thailand, Week's family believed language barriers and a lack of hospital interpreters made the situation even more painful. Hi, my name is Sumeya El Azoui, bringing a new podcast episode to you. Today, we'll be looking deeper into the health of refugees, immigrants, and migrants. I'll be joined by three guests who will help us examine how language barriers affect this population's access to healthcare and their experiences during the COVID pandemic. Communities of refugees, immigrants, and migrants often face many challenges while settling into a new society full of unknowns. Figuring out a new healthcare system can seem scary, which prevents lots of people from getting the care they need. A 2018 health study found that the number of foreign-born patients that use healthcare services is about one-half to two-thirds of the number of U.S. citizens by birth who use services. Foreign-born is a term used by the census that refers to anyone who isn't a U.S. citizen at birth, regardless of legal status. Foreign-born patients also are more likely than citizens to be uninsured. Research from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that changes to immigration policy put into place by the Trump administration played a role in hesitancy about participating in health insurance programs. Healthcare is very expensive for those paying out of pocket. On average, a single doctor's visit costs $300 to $600 for those without insurance. This doesn't even take into account specialists and other add-ons. Among the factors that influence refugee, immigrant, and migrant lives, language and language barriers are highly impactful. These populations make up some of the most linguistically diverse communities, with a wide range of languages and dialects represented. According to 2018 data from the Pew Research Center, 53% of the foreign-born population ages 5 and older are proficient in English. This makes healthcare services harder to seek out and understand while receiving care. 
As the COVID pandemic persists, I wondered how already existing health disparities have affected refugees, immigrants, and migrants in these challenging times. Dr. Shaley Prasad is the executive director of the Center for Global Health and Social Responsibility at the University of Minnesota. In addition, he is co-principal investigator on the National Resource Center for Refugees, Immigrants, and Migrants Project, also referred to as NRC-RIM. He explains how RIM communities have experienced healthcare nationwide and the origins of the CDC-funded project. I am a primary care doctor at heart. I was trained as a family physician. I'm an immigrant to the U.S. And after my residency training and fellowship training in academic medicine, I was a rural doc in Mississippi for nearly 10 years. Subsequent to that, I wanted to get back to academia, and I've been at the University of Minnesota for about 14 years now. And the reason I'm mentioning this is along the path of my practice areas and other places, you recognize that there are significant barriers to healthcare. And one of the most important barriers is about delivering acceptable, accessible care, right? In this context, it is important to keep in mind that in general, health issues, medical issues can be extremely complicated to the best of people. Even very well qualified, you know, educated PhDs might have a tough time navigating through the different issues in our healthcare system or the language we use in medicine, the language we use in healthcare delivery. So imagine if that is the challenge with somebody who speaks English quite well and who's from the U.S. Imagine what it would be for somebody who's not from the U.S. and who does not speak English or speaks multiple languages. Navigation to the healthcare system, understanding medical care, etc., etc., becomes that much more complicated. So that has been one of the main areas in which our work has been going on. Do regional differences exist in terms of the level of health disparity across the U.S.? I don't know if I can classify it that way. What we know is that when there is a critical mass of immigrants, right, there tends to be more resources available. In Minnesota, we have a lot of Somali immigrants and we have a lot of Hmong immigrants. And I can tell you that there are groups that work in this population. So it becomes easier for them to understand challenges because there are other people who understand the culture, understand the language, understand the people who can help. The other point that is interesting is when you have a critical mass, and I don't know if you've noticed this, there tends to be people in the community who are in the healthcare field. And I'm not saying that's the best model because I can understand the burden that somebody like that would feel to navigate to become a social worker, etc., along with being a healthcare professional. But I've seen that also happen where I'm going to give you a couple of examples here in Minnesota. We have Somali folks who are in the healthcare field as physicians, as respiratory therapists, as nurses, as pharmacists. And that becomes a big advantage for others to access. That shouldn't be the way you access because it seems like you're uh, bypassing the healthcare system by finding your own shortcuts. But it's a natural thing, right? So we tend to reach out to people we trust. And so when you have folks that uh, look like you, understand you, are from the same background or culture, it's natural for us to reach out to them. That is another thing that I've noticed. How does language and other societal factors, such as financial standing and education, impact access to healthcare among refugee and immigrant populations? Let's start with the language question first. I think language is such a beautiful construct because it is not just about the words that form a particular language. It's the usage of the language and how the interpretation of the various combination of words that happens, right? It would make a case that you could just do a simple Google Translate or open a dictionary and ask questions as it forms. But we will be very careful that the premise is not just of a translation. A translation might work in very simplistic tasks, like, you know, when a tourist goes, 
goes and says, hey, where is the restroom, right? <laughs> yes, that's a very simplistic task. It's not very complicated. Um, imagine in healthcare, there is more nuance to it. So when you're having discussions in healthcare that can be, number one, in a situation where there's extreme tension, extreme uncertainty, and sometimes decision-making has to be done quickly, all of this is compounded further. So it's not as simple as asking directions, hey, where is the restroom, right? It's more than. So I want us to be cognizant that language is not just a series of words. It's the lived experience of people. It's a cultural background in which communication occurs. Having appropriate language services, which includes beyond just a simple translation, things like cultural interpretation of what's going on, I think is huge, particularly in the healthcare field. And that in itself can be a huge challenge because like I was mentioning, a lot of times this is a situation of making the decision pretty quickly and people don't put in the resources sometimes to make sure that it goes beyond the simple translation. Uh, the other issue you brought about is about education and economic uh, challenges. We know that healthcare access issues around the world, this is not unique to the US. Unfortunately, the disparities is higher when there are economic challenges. And in general, a lot of our immigrant families have other economic challenges too, not all. And that is an added barrier to the language barrier. And the third point you bring up is an education thing. And education, I would keep that in the premise of a health literacy as one, um, because it's beyond the degrees you have. It's the culture of what it means to to navigate the healthcare system. So imagine if you're a new person and you're suddenly asked to go to a large tertiary hospital, you'd be lost. And listen, I've been in the healthcare field in the US for more than 30 years. If it's a new hospital, I am lost. And I know to answer the right questions and places to go to, right? So I do feel that when you talk about education, it's not just the degree part of it. It is the habits of the system that is sometimes difficult to understand. So in such situation, you know, we talked earlier about the cultural broker beyond the translator. There is a need for and healthcare navigator also to be important in this discussion. Could you tell us about the origin of NRC-RIM and how it came into existence? The NRC-RIM is the National Resource Center for Refugees, Immigrants, and Migrants. The place where we are here at the University of Minnesota is sort of a unique situation because we have some fantastic individuals within the university who have been working with refugee population, immigrant populations, and migrant populations for a long time. The lead of our project is Dr. Bill Stoffer, and he has had a unique role to play in both working with the CDC in the refugee division and also with refugee immigrant populations, and not just in Minnesota around the country. When COVID hit, there was a need for developing resources that is easily be accessible to public health departments and other places that would definitely help in making sure that this happened. So that is when, you know, CDC needed to operationalize this quickly. We had a relationship with CDC. I think they trusted us in the work that we do. We had the personnel with expertise in the field. So all of those things came together. Our state health department also has a history of working with immigrant and uh, refugee populations. So that's an added resource. And there are multiple NGOs within Metro Twin Cities in the greater Minnesota area too, who are fantastic partners in this work. So in many ways, it was this ability to put this very different groups together and to work with the CDC that brought the NRC them into being. I make it sound very simple. It's not. There are a lot of people behind the scenes, people in our, our setup uh, in my center who've been toiling really hard to make this what have been the key findings of the project so far? Are there any trends that have stood out? 
the way we have structured the NRC RIM is as a resource center. Our primary audience is health departments, clinical entities, including hospitals or clinics that interact with refugees and immigrants and migrant population. And anybody else, it could be an NGO working with them or civil society of any kind working with them. So it's a pretty large audience from that viewpoint. And our purpose is to, number one, bring in material, be the resource, and then develop materials of our own. That is for public consumption. And we are very open about folks, go ahead and use the stuff. Download it freely, put your logo on it, distribute it. Because the purpose is we are a resource center that would develop these resources. It's been really interesting personally for me to see the fantastic work done by a group called Nacho, which is the National Association of the County and City Health Organizations, which does an amazing job at the grassroots levels in public health. It's been also very interesting. We run a community leadership board, which is made up of immigrants or refugees from various parts of the world who are now in various parts of the US. And we use them as our advisors for the content that we develop or the strategy we have and the material we develop. And I got to tell you, every such meeting, I come out of it feeling refreshed and energized because the wisdom of the group is just fantastic that comes through in any of our conversations that we have. And they're all working really hard in their own communities, in their own groups, but they still are willing to give us some of their time in developing. And the third part has been a partnership we developed with an organization called IDO.org. It's an organization that develops material from the ground up, not develop material and take it to communities, but go to communities and build material from there. So we've been working with them on materials, posters, et cetera, et cetera, that we could then disseminate. And so it's been good to see that. You know this, Maya. One of the interesting parts that this pandemic has exposed, and we knew this all along, but it's exposed sort of a mistrust of higher education, mistrust of government, mistrust of science, mistrust of anything like that, right? Keeping that in mind, I feel that the key role for us is to bridge that gap. And that gap needs to be bridged in a way where we are respectful of communities and understand why they have opinions that they have. What is the wisdom they bring to the equation? And how can we then create material that is palatable, understandable, and easily digestible amongst communities? So that, I think, has been a key learning from this. You mentioned earlier that it's more important than just a translation when speaking with a patient from a different culture and linguistic background. How do you gain their trust through accurate translations? I think it's two things. One is obviously it's important to keep in mind that it is, you know, the wisdom will come from learned experiences. So the organizations that are working with communities tend to have more of that. I might be familiar with certain words and that's about it in some languages, but I can't presume to understand all the cultural differences of the different communities, right? Going to those trusted groups is one. And then when we have a translated material, be rigorous about it from the viewpoint of saying, is this translation adequate? Are there cultural faux pas that we are creating? Are we creating some more challenges by using some of the phrases and things like that? So it's that vigorous testing, if you will, of the translated material is also very important. So if somebody would come to us and say, hey, I'm willing to donate my time to translate, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, We appreciate that, but is that adequate? Is that enough? You know, those types of questions become very important. I first heard about NRC RIM through the International Rescue Committee's work with vaccine distribution here in Atlanta. How is NRC RIM working to increase distribution numbers and get rid of vaccine hesitancy? Like I mentioned before, we are a resource center. We are not an implementer. 
And this is a nod to the strengths of our partners. So like you mentioned, IRC or other organizations that we're working with, they are amazing in the implementations that they do. They have the lived experience of working with communities that go way beyond just this project. So with that in mind, the material that we develop are toolkits. So for example, in vaccines, there are vaccine toolkits. How do you do a campaign? How do you set up a mobile vaccine center? What are the things to keep in mind? Vaccine posters, information on vaccines, like for example, one vaccine, there was some concern. So we developed some information that people could now download, print, and then distribute. We want to say that we want to be the backup for these implementers in the work that they're doing. Our toolkits, for example, in our, on our website, you can see our toolkits, and we, we strongly encourage people to just go into our website, and I don't want to use the word steal, because you're not stealing. We're asking you to take it from there, download it, and put it to use, like I mentioned before. Put your logo on it. We don't care. Just keep it going. Our job is to number one, identify what the need is, what would our partners need, then develop it or bring it together. And sometimes if somebody else has developed it, partner with them and say, hey, can we share your resources? I would say the quick answer to your last question would be that we would provide the backup, all the implementing work. Our partners do some fantastic work, including IRC, right? And sometimes when they're in the busy of it, if, we, if they have resources they can lean on, their work becomes a little more easier. So that's where we fit in. How do you expect the project to progress in the coming months? Good question. So NRC Rim has been around for a year now. We just this month started our second year. And the second year, we currently have funding for two years. The way we look at it is an ongoing conversation with our partners. And that includes the CDC. CDC is a funder, but CDC is also a partner. To ask what are the trends, what are the languages, what are the challenges, what are the issues we are, we are hearing in the community. Midway through last year, there was a huge concern about school. There was concern about childhood vaccination. Now we are hearing a little more about what people have been referring to as a pandemic fatigue, exhaustion regarding it. So are there mental health resources we need to develop? So I think the next many months, we need to be responsive to what the needs in the community and our partners are, and then develop the materials important for that. I think while folks go into this pandemic fatigue, there sometimes is a tendency for us to forget that we are still in the midst of it. So how do we then keep that tension up? How do we acknowledge the exhaustion? Make sure that our partners are not completely exhausted and what are the ways we can, you know, boost them up. And then based on the needs, keep adjusting. It's a fascinating project in the sense that we are at a very responsive situation. Like we need to be responsive to the needs rather than we come in with a plan and boom, here it is. NRC RIM has many free resources, including guides for health education and language toolkits. Head over to NRC rim.org for more information. Shifting from a national focus, I wanted to hone in on a region more local to me. Georgia has a continuously growing refugee, immigrant, and migrant community, making up 10% of the whole state's population. One community in Georgia has been gaining national attention, especially during the pandemic. Clarkston is one of the largest refugee resettlement communities in the country and is also nicknamed the most diverse square mile in America. It has welcomed people from more than 40 countries who speak over 60 languages. I was curious to see how a community full of linguistic and cultural diversity has handled healthcare despite health disparities. Dr. Mary Helen O'Connor is an assistant professor of English and director of the Center for Community Engagement at Georgia State University. Her work focuses on advocacy for refugee and immigrant communities. She sat down with me to discuss her most recent role as co-investigator on a CDC-funded study 
focused in Clarkston. I used to have an assignment in my class called, how did you end up in this English class? It was like the first essay. And one night I was at home reading and grading papers and I was reading this essay and it, it started, my name is Nathaniel Nayak. I was born in a small village in South Sudan and Arab militiamen destroyed and burned my village and killed my family. And I was, I was just, what? What, do you, what is, and that really was my first introduction into understanding the world of, of the refugee experience. And then came to learn, I, you know, I knew, I knew I was teaching lots and lots of international students in my classes, but was not really clear about how those people were ending up in my class. And then from there, it became an act of, an act of love. I grew up as a small child with a strong awareness of the importance of immigration and saving people's lives and protecting them. My neighbors were Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe been sort of a, in the fabric of who I am. And my advocacy work began when I began to understand Nathaniel. And he actually approached me um, and asked if I would help him start a nonprofit um, because he was interested in building schools back in South Sudan. And I did. And many years later, it's been many years, and he's back in South Sudan building schools. And he wrote a book about his life experiences. I received that book on a Christmas Eve, and I went down to my mailbox and was thumbing through it looking for the part about me. And he talks about how I was the teacher who he asked for help and, and, you know, was willing to help. And that was a long time ago. And it has become my life's work. I actually have moved out to Clarkson and everything that I do is connected to, I don't want to say refugee, but just migration, you know, the different reasons people have to move to stay safe. And the community where I live and work has become my family. In your advocacy work, how have you seen language barriers affect the everyday lives of immigrants and refugees? Well, this is where I put on my scholarship subject matter expert hat. And in every study that we've conducted, language, the language barrier is the most significant barrier to every sort of social determinant of health, whether it's employment, education, whether you can talk to your doctor or your health provider and understand what's wrong with you. You know, I just moderated a session this week with some maternal health folks in the community and some women, some refugee women who had, had been through births recently. And if you can't, and this doesn't even go just for, for refugees or people who don't speak English, but if you can't communicate with your doctor, or your health provider, that has a direct impact on your health. My mother has been in and out of the hospital four times during COVID. And, you know, she's, she was a teacher <laughs> and she had a hard time communicating. So I'm not sure that it's just a linguistic thing. It's all wrapped up in power and roles people play and agency and, of course, language proficiency. But when it comes to the refugee and, and immigrant community, language proficiency is the most important disparity. And we don't do a good job of providing language instruction to anyone in the state of Georgia, the, the policy and funding of like adult education or language language courses for newcomers is severe. I think we're, we're near the bottom, like in terms of how much money is, is devoted to those sorts of programs. So as the most significant barrier, we do very little to address it.
And it's really, it's really a problem. So our, our work has been sort of the other way we've been trying, especially during COVID to provide culturally and linguistically appropriate information to communities. And, you know, um, Clarkson is super diverse. There are more than 60 languages and dialects here. And when you start talking about translating, even something very simple about COVID mitigation or the vaccine into all these different languages, it is hard work. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, So that's what we've been doing for the last 19 months. What methods are being used to make information more accessible? Well, we have tried everything. And, you know, we are still um, learning. So when we hear from our community members, and many, many, many of my students are refugees or are international students or immigrants. And so I really just spend a lot of time listening to what they think works. So we've developed something called the Refugee and Immigrant Health Information Toolkit. It's available online. They're animated videos that are in 13 different languages around like the top 10 chronic disease um, issues that we see in the community, diabetes, hypertension, all these different things. And then we have them translated and they're available. We're in the process of getting them put on an app so that a doctor can text video to patients. Um, we've, we've learned over the the years that giving people a piece of paper when they leave the doctor doesn't really often work because sometimes people aren't even written. They're not literate in their native language written. They can speak it, but they can't read it. I can't tell you how many of our clinical partners say they give health information to patients and they see them throw it in the garbage as soon as they walk out the door. We have tried to be very creative. We do a lot of online Facebook live events where we have providers who speak the languages of our community. We had one last week in Kurdish and Somali, and we have one next week that will be in Swahili. So we try to provide information in, in home languages and native languages as, as often as we can. And then we also try to train our students and, and clinical partners how to be better at listening and communicating. So it goes both ways, right? You know, like doctors have an average of five to seven minutes with a patient. How are they going to even explain anything? You know, so we've tried to come up with tools that clinicians can use and and also just to teach our nursing students and our health profession students that are going into the community to be more patient and to be more creative. The other important piece here actually has to do with refugees understanding their rights And it is a civil right that if you are in the hospital or you're with a provider, that they have to use a language line for interpretation. And we've learned that many, many providers in in the area do not do it. It's expensive. We've done a lot to try. We've helped one of our free clinics get a a grant to fund language line. If it's a free clinic, they're not required by law to use language line interpretation. But hospitals are. And so if if you're going to the hospital, you should be able to demand that they call the nurse or the doctor call the language line to help interpret when you're there. And in fact, the two women I was interviewing this week, they have had providers flat out refuse to do it in the hospital, which is not legal. So helping people understand their rights, we're getting ready to launch a health information campaign in the community called Health for All. And we're going to be giving people a card that lists what language they speak. 
and their name and their health information so that when they go to a doctor, they can just hand it to the doctor or to the nurse or to the provider so they understand who they are, what language they speak, any existing pre-existing conditions they have, any medicines that they're taking. So we're going into the community and going into the apartment complexes, going to places where people can access us because transportation is another one of the, so language is a big social determinant or barrier to health, but transportation is as well. So our philosophy is that we're going to go to the people and we're going to go, we're going to have an event at a mosque. We're going to have events in the apartment complexes. And we're going to be giving people some of the tools they need to help ask for better care. What trends in immigrant and refugee healthcare sparked the need for the Clarkson COVID vaccine study? So actually that came as a supplement to our original project. So what happened was um, we were awarded a prevention research center grant. This is the only academic funding that the CDC provides and it, and competitively we applied to, um, to do research and it's, it's in chronic health prevention. And there had not been one in a migrant, a primarily refugee migrant community. So we were one of two new awardees, you know, so we're, we feel very lucky and fortunate. And then each PRC received a supplement to work on COVID vaccine uptake. So that specific project is related to our PRC work. So that's why it's Clarkson. Now, what's interesting is that we have been working on COVID with our community partners for so long that we learned that the vaccination rate in Clarkston is actually higher than similar communities. So the social vulnerability index is what the CDC uses to kind of gauge the fragility or vulnerability of a community. And when you compare similar communities, we are outpacing in our vaccine efforts, which is extremely good news because we were really concerned that we were going to get hit hard by COVID. You know, most of the folks here live in very densely populated apartment complexes with large families. They work in frontline jobs. They would be more susceptible to, you know, an economic impact to this really disrupting. And we still don't know how much it's disrupted or injured our community. So the vaccine uptake grant is to work specifically on the more resistant communities. And we've targeted a few where we've seen, we've seen a lot of hesitancy and misinformation. Georgia State also was awarded an NIH RADx grant, which is um, NIH's attempt to help accelerate vaccination. And so we have lots of lots of work finally going on. I've been working in this community for 15 years and it's finally taken off. What have been some key findings thus far? How is language diversity in Clarkson affecting COVID vaccine operations? I have lots of stories, but I don't have any really clear data because we're still collecting it. I think that certain communities, it's a it's a religious op- opposition to it. And so there's a lot of fear around the fact that they believe. I mean, I can tell you there's all sorts of myths. We get um, it has magnets in it. It has a tracking device. It is the sign of the devil. And when when Jesus comes back, everyone who's had the vaccine will die and the rest of everybody else will be okay, that it affects fertility, that it alters your DNA. So I could go, I could go through a list. I think things started to change when people in the community were getting really sick. And so we saw a lot of folks going to the hospital with COVID. And when it impacts someone in your family, then people start to go, okay, this is really serious. And if there's something I can do to prevent my family from getting sick, then I'm going to do it. I had a colleague woman this week that I was speaking with tell me, 
can you please find someone who's not had the vaccine, had COVID, been in the hospital and been very sick and changed their mind and interview them? Because I've actually been going around doing interviews with uh, doctors and we're putting out kind of some clips on social media, correcting a lot of misinformation. And, you know, that's a brilliant idea. We've had a hard time finding people who are willing to speak about that experience. There's um, quite a lot of shame around. It was funny. um, I was hanging out at a graduation barbecue with a bunch of old, older Sudanese men. And I was the only white woman and the only woman over in this group. (laughs) They whipped out their card and said, we've all been vaccinated, but they didn't want anybody to know. The other trend we've noticed is that the older refugee population is actually more willing to get vaccinated. It's the younger generation that has been more skeptical. A lot of like I don't really need this. The refugee population has really been more receptive than the evangelical population here in the community. So, you know, we have a lot of faith-based organizations doing work here. And the most resistant group is white evangelical and Republican males. I think that vaccine uptake needs to be spoken about in broad terms without you know, targeting an individual group. Although it's difficult to do research out talking about particular cultural groups. And so, you know, we're just approaching this as let's try to provide as much access to linguistically appropriate information as possible so that people are not believing the WhatsApp videos and the TikTok videos that the people are cir- circulating that aren't true and to combat it from, from that way. We know that shaming people is not going to help anything at all. So we're really trying to create a positive message that Clarkson's ahead of the game. We're doing better than most of the state. So let's get all the way there. Clarkson community immunity. Let's protect our community. And that's actually from the very beginning, our messaging has been positive. Protect your family, protect your community. So let's do this. We're all in this together. We've had some really great clinical partners like Ethne Health got vaccines here in this community. They were one of the first providers um, to have vaccine available and administered something like 7,000 vaccines quickly early on in the pandemic. I think we have learned a really important lesson about community collaboration, and it has been remarkable how everybody has come together. So that's been the silver lining of this otherwise really not fun time. How do you expect the study to progress in the coming months? Well, the COVID study, so we hired six community ambassadors from different groups. And so we are also doing focus group studies to understand people's hesitancy. And our goal is to increase vaccination by 50% by the end of the project. Um, We're right in the thick of it right now because we just hired and trained our ambassadors. So they've just been deployed. You know, I think what's difficult about COVID is that something changes every day, right? So now we're going to be dealing with children getting vaccinated and booster shots and a different variant. And so it's like you're playing a game, you learn the rules, and then the rules change again. (laughs) We're just trying to adjust along the way. And I feel, I feel positively that, that we're going to, we're going to achieve our goal. I feel like we've gotten so far, we've done so much uh, already. And I think that if we address the things that we know are the barriers, language and transportation, and we get into the community and help people understand why they need to do it and make it easily available, I think we'll get there. After speaking with Dr. O'Connor and listening to the anecdotes she retold, I wanted to hear from someone who has worked directly with patients in Clarkston. 
It was important for me to hear a different perspective, maybe one that would tell of these realities from a personal level. Refugee, immigrant, and migrant communities are more than just statistics and research findings. They are people who've lived real-life experiences. Trupti Patel is a second-year medical student at the Georgia campus of Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. She was clinical coordinator at the Clarkston Community Health Center, where she had more than two years of translation experience. She talked to me about how she became interested in this essential role and her work advocating for refugee, immigrant, and migrant patients. I was pre-med at Georgia Tech and I took a gap year after graduating. During my time at Georgia Tech, I was a biology major. So we took an ecology class and we went to the west side of Atlanta. And I had no idea how different the west side was from metropolitan Atlanta, how different the environment was, how they didn't have any transportation and how that can kind of affect their health care. I know I was there to do ecology research and water testing, but being pre-med, that's what was on my mind. So after graduating, I looked for opportunities to volunteer in areas of need around Atlanta. I live in Tucker, Georgia, so I live like 10 minutes from Clarkston, um, and I knew there was a big refugee population there because in, in high school, some students had volunteered in Clarkston. So I kind of started looking around, and I had a friend who knew Dr. Harji at Clarkston Community Health Center. So I reached out, kind of tricky back in the day, like being a free clinic, resources are low, so communication was lagging. One day, finally someone answered my email when I was planning on just kind of showing up to clinic. Then I was just thrown in doing vitals, doing small volunteer work. I didn't know that they had a need for translators until like, you know, someone saw that my last name was Patel and someone saw me just like, you know, taking someone's blood glucose and they were like, hey, do you speak Hindi? And I was like, you know, I can understand it. I, it's basic. Come here. I need you. I need your help translating. Then people discovered that I was fluent in Gujarati. So whenever they needed someone and I was there, they would just pull me over. So that kind of became like an unofficial role for me. Through that, I started, you know, building a relationship with the patients there. So even during COVID, I felt like I had a really strong relationship with these patients and I knew their stories and I knew a lot of their whole medical histories because I had translated for them so much. So I kept doing that work during COVID. I couldn't stop. It wasn't so much of a choice. It was just there was a need. So I, I did it. For the community that the center worked with, how diverse is it in terms of languages spoken and ethnicities represented? We have some Spanish patients. We have people that speak Farsi, Arabic, Tagunya. We had one lady speaking Tagunya and we had to call a language line. Amharic, Gujarati, Hindi, Urdu some African dialect that I can't remember the name of. We had one patient speaking French and one of our doctors is kind of um, knowledgeable in French. So she would help. We have some patients from Nepal or around that area. So it's very diverse. A lot of patients are, I want to say, African refugees, Spanish from Pakistan or India. Th those are a big portion, but it's very diverse. And when you're dealing with these language barriers, what tactics do you use? Like, for example, what steps would you go through to make sure that the message in one language is correctly translated into the other? 
So that can be tricky at times. I do have experience working in the emergency department and we would use language lines there. So I kind of had a background like knowing what official translators translate like, how they like speak to the doctor and how they speak to the patient. So I would kind of try to model that. The format would be the doctor looks at the patient, makes eye contact, asks a question, introduces themselves, asks a question, and then the patient and the doctor would look at the translator. The translator would repeat what the doctor had said back in the native language and the patient would answer they look back at the translator translator would respond that's the basic format but a lot of times what happens is these patients are uncomfortable when they first walk in they're quiet they don't want you know they don't really understand what's going on so they smile and nod their head but when they find out there's a translator everything is let loose they start talking and talking and telling you everything so a lot of the times you as a translator have to focus on the question and repeat back and say look the doctor is asking this question can you tell me the answer to it some people only answer the question back to the doctor but you know knowing me i'm a medical student like i know the doctor should know all the information they can so i just translate as much as i possibly can that the patient said and explain to the doctor and you know having a medical background is nice too you can kind of add your own input to the conversation like um she told me this she said this she said this hurt she mentioned this happens in the morning that maybe someone else may not have thought was important and wouldn't necessarily have translated. You mentioned language lines. Could you like explain a little more? Like, are these regional or national and how you can work with them? Our clinic doesn't have its own personal language line. We use another hospital networks, but basically how they all work and the one in the ER where I worked used to work the same way is you call a number, an operator will answer the phone and you state your clinic number and then you state what language you want translated. And within like a minute, they'll connect you to a translator that speaks that language. They'll introduce themselves. They'll say like their ID number. And then you can just tell them, here's the doctor. They'll be taking over the conversation now. I believe hospitals pay for the language service. I don't know if it's free, but it's usually through hospital networks or like government networks. I didn't know that was a thing. So that's really interesting. I think you can get trained as a professional translator as well. Not just hospitals, like government agencies also use it. What other social barriers, economic or education, have you seen in patients? You know, with this patient population, knowing what countries they come from, like why they came to the U.S., hoping for like a better life. A lot of times their education is not as great as people that have gone to college. So they usually have some quite some barriers, but they're very understanding. I think the most important thing is how the providers and the translator communicates with the patient to help them understand. So not using medical jargon, trying to use simple words, not overly complicating explanations. You know, the last patient I can remember who needed translation, he was at the clinic for an endocrinologist appointment, a specialty clinic they had scheduled for him. Through like several months, his thyroid levels had been abnormal. They scheduled him for an endocrinologist appointment to get his thyroid checked out. And he didn't know what a thyroid was. He didn't know why he was there. He just trusted that the doctor had, you know, called him and he needed something to be taken care of. The doctor didn't necessarily, I think she knew somewhat that he wasn't understanding what she said, but In the room, I kind of saw that he still wasn't understanding. So I asked the doctor, like, 
I don't think he knows what a thyroid is. Could you kind of explain to him? And I asked the translator, could you explain to him like he's here because, you know, his lab work was abnormal. So we brought him here because he needs to get this checked out. And when he understood that, he was so grateful. But a lot of times these patients, they're intelligent. They can understand. They just need you to cross that barrier for them and take an extra step. And they're very, very grateful once you do. And it's also important in medical adherence, right? Like if they don't understand why they're taking this medication, you know, they're going to forget to take it. And they're like, oh, it's fine. Like I forgot to take it once, whatever. It's not that important. But if they understand why they're taking it, they're way more likely to take it and stay on top of it and come back to the doctor. That's the main way that education has been a barrier is in conjunction with the language. A lot of times once you cross the language barrier, it's much better kind of trends have you seen? Have there been any particular barriers in terms of language and trying to address questions about COVID? I worked through the pandemic, April, the clinic shut down, and then we transitioned. It was like two months to transition to telehealth. So I was working telehealth from August 2020, all the way until maybe May 2021. There are some trends I saw, like our doctors would call patients, you know, ask, have you been social distancing? Do you have symptoms? A lot of patients were getting COVID because of where they work. So a lot of them work in like factories, warehouses, grocery stores, and a lot of people there were not wearing masks. The patients would get sick. They'd call the doctor. The doctor would translate and explain to them like, you know, how to social distance how it's important to wear your mask, all of that, like how long they need to quarantine. You know, one other trend I saw was that family members, once that person got sick, their whole family would get sick. Like one family I can think of, it was four people living in a two-bedroom apartment. It was two parents and two sons. You know, they all needed to quarantine in separate rooms. Two people, one person took one bedroom, one person took one bedroom. One person slept in a closet and the other slept in the living room. That was the situation they were in and they shared, they all shared one bathroom. So it's not easy to quarantine. So that was another pattern we saw. That was another barrier kind of educating people and working and being flexible. And then another thing, once the vaccine came around was vaccine hesitancy. You know, some patients are on top of it. They listen to the doctor, they trust their doctor. And when you explain, they trust you and they they listen to you and, you know, they know that you only have their best interest in mind, but other patients just have this fear and they listen more to their community and people they work with than the doctor necessarily. And I think part of it is, you know, the language and cultural barrier. Like if you see someone that looks very different than you, you're going to trust the person that looks same as you and speaks your language, maybe more. But some patients like heard misinformation, like, you know, if you get your vaccine, they'll check your citizenship documentation. So they were scared of going and getting their vaccine even though we explained, no, no, you can just walk up, you know, and just get it. And they don't ask any information like that. But, you know, once someone in their community told them that they were too afraid, and I still even know like one patient and her husband who are still too scared, they still haven't gotten it. And they're very old, but, you know, they only stay at home. The husband works in a jewelry shop, like in his own office. So the doctor decided it's fine. If they're too fearful right now, like their lifestyle is socially distanced enough where they'll be okay. Even now, they're continuing to do telehealth appointments because it's so convenient for these patients, especially patients of this socioeconomic status, because a lot of them work, a lot of them work long 12-hour shifts at gas stations, grocery stores. So it's very hard for them to take a day off and come to the doctor because they don't have weekends off. We're only open Sundays, sometimes Wednesdays. So telehealth was convenient, one, because they could take a phone call while they're at work at the gas station. A lot of times we'd hear commotion and they'd pause and like check out a customer 
customer and then keep talking to the doctor. That was great for the patient. And then second, when COVID first hit and everything shut down, the biggest fear doctors had besides COVID, like patients getting COVID, was that they'd stop taking their medications, they'd run out, they wouldn't know how to get a refill. I think there's research out there that they saw like a higher rate of higher acuity patients go to the ER, meaning like they come to the ER in serious condition. They had avoided care because things were shut down. So that was a big fear. And telehealth helped that. Telehealth kept people in contact with their doctor, getting their refill of their prescriptions. And if they did get COVID, the doctor could prescribe medications to them. They could you know, recommend that they go to the hospital when they needed to, so they don't delay care. Overall, it was also convenient for the doctors because they wanted to stay safe at home. So they took appointments at home, They didn't have to commute to the clinic, so they could see a lot more patients a lot faster, but it was a a huge benefit. Do you have any special anecdotes or any experiences that were memorable that you'd like to share? I'll share this one because it's like the first one I think of. There was like one patient, I call her auntie, which is like what you call like people in your community that are like your elders. Like it's a little bit more respectful, a little bit more close term in our culture. The first day I saw her, she like spoke no English. She still only can say hello and thank you. But I think they used a language line and they found out she speaks Gujarati. So then they pulled me over. And this patient is just so talkative, so friendly. She is on top of it. She wants to tell the doctor all her problems. She wants to make sure I'm telling the doctor every single thing she telling me you know she was so grateful at the end of her appointment but you know she's 64 and over time like I've asked her like do you have any kids where's your family where's your kids she only lives with her husband her husband works in a jewelry store she stays at home she used to work in a restaurant but now she stays at home and her kids are in India over time like I just kind of became like her healthcare advocate unofficially because I gave her my phone number I said look if you ever need like help with something like translating or something just you know call me And she did. So during COVID, I would translate for her doctor's appointments on the phone. I knew her entire medical history because I had talked to the doctor about it so many times. Now, like when she needs an appointment, when she's out of her medication, she will still WhatsApp message me and I'll schedule her for an appointment and I'll translate for the doctor. Just, you know, I'm just that person and I feel responsible. But my mom knows her too, because <laughs> sometimes like I'm in medical school. So I, sometimes, you know, I have an exam or I'm busy. Also, my mom's Gujarati is so much better than mine. So at times I have just given her the phone. <laughs> Some patients like her translating more than me. So they'll just tell my mom. But yeah, she's like a fan family friend now. You know, her husband repaired like a piece of jewelry for my mother once. You know, I've driven her to clinic once or twice for her appointment. Just really warmed my heart. That makes me feel more connected to the clinic and patients because they are like family. They they are just, you know, part of our community. And it makes you feel responsible for these patients and what a big impact just speaking the same language as someone can make. What is something that you wish could be done to help make patient experiences better? I'm thinking that it can be on any scale. So it can be a community effort or on a larger scale, like national policy or law. That's a really good question. You know, the first like small scale thing I can think of is having some sort of volunteer organization where you can take young people from the community and have them help and volunteer to translate for elders. Because it is a lot of the times an older population that needs help with translation the younger population will know more English. Uh, That's one solution I can see. 
Policy-wise, I think it would be great to have a, like, maybe this exists and maybe I don't know about it, but like a national translation line that anyone can call at any time if they need a translator. It doesn't have to be like a doctor's office or a government office calling on the behalf of someone. It can be like that person calling for themselves. Like say someone gets in a car accident and they can't talk to the other person. They could just call this number. That would just be so helpful to people. Lastly, I would say just more people being aware of what a language barrier means and how it can impact people. Because a lot of people live in a bubble, right? Like they may not be bilingual at all. They don't know the struggles that immigrants and refugees face here and how big the language barrier can be and how resilient these people are for, you know, starting a life here despite the language barrier. So I think just more people understanding what that means would result in more compassion overall, which would just help everyone. Language is a vital tool used by all of us in our daily activities. It's easy to overlook unless it becomes a hindrance to our lives. My goal was to bring awareness to language barriers, a major roadblock facing many refugees, immigrants, and migrants and their access to adequate health care. Despite barriers, these communities have been able to work together and persevere. This was a common point brought up by both Dr. Prasad and Dr. O'Connor. A couple of quick thoughts here. One is quite often immigrants, refugees and migrants in this country are looked down upon. There's a tendency to blame them. And this is not unique to COVID. We've seen this with any disease, any illness. There's a tendency to blame specific communities as they are the ones who brought it here. I think we need to make it very clear to everybody that we're all in this together. If we do not address the problem in all communities, for that matter, all communities around the world, this disease will be here for much, much longer than we think. The second part to keep in mind is the communities that we are talking about are amazing communities. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an immigrant myself. They bring a lot of richness and the richness in the lived experience, in the language, the culture, their worldview, et cetera, et cetera, which actually helps the U.S. a lot. So I don't want it to be that we are addressing this because, oh, they are the problem community. I want us to look at it as there is a significant amount of richness in this community and we need to celebrate. So that, I think, is another key message from my viewpoint. I've been really lucky to interact with people from different cultures and different communities. And if anything, that has enriched my life. So let's not forget, my refugee community is one of the most resilient, hardworking, intelligent group of people that I know. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. We've been provided ways we can help dismantle language barriers and health inequities. Advocating for better educational policy, using the many free tools being created and distributed, and practicing safe health behaviors to protect ourselves and those around us. We can even use any of our own multilingual capabilities to step up as unofficial translators, an idea Troop D mentioned. I would just say like being bilingual is amazing. And I would say like personally having this experience and and helping so many people with my language, I, I never saw it coming. I just learned my language. Like my parents taught me how to speak Gujarati so I could talk to them. I could hold on to my culture, my heritage. And so I could talk to my elders and like my grandparents and my family. I never knew that it could help other people that were strangers. That just kind of fell into place after I graduated college. So I'd say to like young people that are bilingual, 
even if you have no skills, but you're fluent in something, like you can help, you can make a difference. Reach out to people, see if they need your help translating. You know, a lot of times they'll probably say yes. In bringing awareness to this topic, I hope that community members, whether allies or refugees, immigrants, or migrants themselves, feel heard and now have an idea of something, anything they can do to be supportive. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to featured guests Dr. Shaley Prasad, Dr. Mary Helen O'Connor, and Trupti Patel for taking the time to contribute to this important conversation. Thank you for listening to the COVID Chronicles. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate it on your favorite podcasting app. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe and be well.